Good evening, everyone. Uh, I want to say good morning, but good evening. My name is Aaron. And uh, if you're new to our church, welcome. If we've never met, it's because I have the joy of serving as a campus pastor at our campus in Eastvale. And so I'm usually there. Uh, and tonight I'm kind of pitch hitting for Matthew and Chris. And it's a blessing to be here with you all uh, this evening. Uh, if I want to give a little update about our church uh, and my own life. My, the Opak family is doing really well. We have a new addition in our family. And I want to show a picture of her on the screen for you all. There she is. This is Misty. Uh, my wife and I told uh, ourselves that we would never get a dog. Anybody else out there? And then my kids, 9 and 11, they just kept on asking. And then more guilt came and more guilt came. And so uh, Misty, our dog, is a welcome part to our family. Our church family is doing really well in Eastvale as well. Uh, we just had five people come to Christ last Sunday, which is awesome. We had 18 people get baptized last month. Thank you very much. <laughs> Praise God for that. Uh, we went to two services, uh, now 9 and 11. So thank you for your prayers and your support and for blessing our congregation. And hopefully tonight, uh, God's word and what I have um, planned will be a blessing to you all. So thank you. Have you ever thought you had something and then you really didn't have it? You thought you had something and then you really didn't. You thought you were in shape. Then you, yeah, you all, yeah. Then you went to the doctor and your cholesterol levels are a little high. You thought you had something, but then you really didn't. You, you thought you had good car insurance, you get in a car accident, and you realize you checked the, the cheaper option. You, you thought you knew teenagers. That's all of us with teenagers, right? You, you, you volunteered at a camp. You, you, you were a youth counselor. And then you had your own teenagers. And your son got a mustache and a mullet. And who knows what's going on with that stuff right now. I, I thought I had a PR while I was running cross country in college. Crossed the, the finish line, looked at my watch. I was like, man, I was going so fast. And this guy in khakis and a polo shirt and a lanyard. And if that guy talks to you, you know you're in trouble at any event. And he said, son, I'm so sorry. Uh, I have to disqualify you. You missed the whole entire fourth mile. I thought I had a PR, but in the end, I was a cheater. Okay, that's what happened to me, right? <laughs> Maybe you thought you had enough in retirement. And then your financial planner called you and said, you know, you got to live a little tighter. You thought your job was more secure, and then the recession comes. You thought that maybe your friendship with that person was never going to change, and then you started talking politics. You thought you had something, but then you didn't after all. Now, those are some pretty serious situations that we all face in our life, but none of them are as important as thinking that you have saving faith, but you really don't. How do you know? How do you know if a person is really saved or not? How do you know if a person is born again, as we talk about as Christians? You know, our mission statement as a church is that we would become a community of authentic Christ followers compelled to change the world. We wanna make disciples of Jesus fully formed disciples who do the things that Jesus did in real life from a joyful heart. How do you know if somebody really is a disciple or not? There are a lot of different answers out there. Have you heard the, the one about the guy who dies, goes to heaven, stands at heaven's gate. The apostle Peter says, welcome to heaven. You can come into heaven. You just have to spell one word. The word is L-O-V or love. The man says L-O-V-E. He says, great, you can come into heaven. 
He says, before I let you in, though, I got to go do a quick errand for Jesus. So I'll be right back. Can you watch the gates of heaven for me? The man says, sure. While he's standing there, uh, his wife appears out of nowhere. He says, honey, what happened? She says, well, I was at your funeral, and then I got into a car accident on the way home, and poof, here I am. He says, well, you can come into heaven if you want to. You just got to spell one word for me. Czechoslovakia. <laughs> Sorry. Bart, that's on you, man. Okay. Uh, I, no, I'm just kidding. That one, maybe that one can lead in, stay in Norco, where our church is. Um, uh, there are a lot of different answers to how to get to heaven people have today. But James gives us one that we have to listen to this morning or this evening. And the passage is found in James chapter 2, verse 14. James chapter 2, verse 14. I'm going to begin reading and then I will pray as we break down the passage. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, as we just sang a moment ago, you are high and lifted up and our hearts have been warmed to your presence and we pray that you would awaken us, Lord, and cause us to hear your voice and to hear from you tonight and help us to listen among busy lives about what it means to be saved and a follower of you. We pray that your word this morning, this evening, would speak powerfully and bear fruit. And thank you so much for this church, God, that I've been a part of for 12 years. Uh, thank you so much for the blessing of them. Thank you for their faithfulness to you and the gospel. God, I love them. And I'm so thankful to be here tonight. And I pray you'd bless the evening in Jesus' name. Amen. So James writes as a pastor to his congregation, and he wants to speak to them about mercy and love because their mercy and love is a little low towards those in the congregation, but also towards the poor. And if you were here last week, I don't know who spoke, but the passage beforehand was about showing mercy to those in need. And James wants to encourage them to keep showing mercy to everyone, especially those uh, who don't have as much as we have. Uh, I don't know if you ever watched the show Columbo. Um, yeah, nobody. Just like, yeah, thanks. One, one or two of you. I asked my congregation that and everyone just stared at me because we're all a bunch of 30-year-olds. And it was like, okay. So a show in the 1980s, Columbo, if you know it, Columbo played the fool. He always walked around scratching his head and he asked the guy who was usually guilty a bunch of questions. Well, James is kind of doing that in this passage. He's like, you know, I don't, I just don't get it. That's what Columbo used to say. He said, I, I just don't understand. You say that you're a Christian, that you follow Jesus, but you just don't show much love. That's what James is trying to get to in verse 14 when he opens up with two questions. If someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save them? What quality of faith does a person have if they have no evidence of faith? Can that faith be really saving faith? In their life, James asks, he gives us a case study in verse 15. A person who professes to be a Christian uh, says or sees someone in need. They don't have shoes. They, they don't have uh, clothing. They don't have clothes. And instead of being moved by their faith to help, they just say, oh, I'll pray for you, brother. Oh, sister, I'm so sorry. 
and they do nothing about it. James is trying to focus in on empty words that might reveal an empty faith. Oh, I'm so sorry that happened to you. I'll pray and then we never do. Oh, man. We hear about a tragedy in someone's life in our group and we don't send them a meal or check in on them. You see, it's so easy to talk the talk in the Christian life. But the only way to know if we're really walking with Jesus and he's in our life is by our actions. And so he says in verse 17, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is lukewarm. No. Dormant. No. He says if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Dead. Not passive, not dormant, but dead. You know, it's so easy to identify if a person is dead at an open casket funeral. Despite putting makeup on, there's a change to their skin color. There's always a little smell and there's a sense of lifelessness in the room. And the same is true in our faith. If it's not accompanied by any evidence, the animating power of the Holy Spirit and of saving faith might not belong in a person if there's no evidence of it. Now, some may wonder, maybe here tonight, if this contradicts the rest of the New Testament. He's like, I've, always, I've been told, Aaron, that all I have to do is believe in Jesus, and that's it, and I'm good to go. Does this contradict the rest of the Bible? Well, in Romans chapter 3, verse 28, it famously says, For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. There it is. I'm not, I'm not saved by works. And then it says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it's by grace you've been saved through faith and this not of yourself, it's a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Pastor, there it is, right there. Not by works. Is there a contradiction between what the Bible, Paul and Jesus and, and the rest of the New Testament are saying and James? Not at all. They work in harmony. In fact, Jesus said this in Matthew 7. You will know them by their fruits. Know who a disciple is by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes or fig, fig, uh, figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit. A bad tree cannot produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. The good fruit which comes from a good tree, is planted in Jesus Christ. I have here uh, a plant. Is it fake or is it real? How do you know? I even turned to, to Bart, our executive pastor, and said, is it fake or is it real? He, he couldn't tell. He didn't know if I was joking. I'm like, seriously, is it fake or is it real? How do you really know if it's fake or real? The only way is to investigate the growth, the fruit, and to make sure it's actually in the right kind of soil. It's grounded, and that's true with us as, as, as Christians. You can look like a Christian, but the only way to know is by the fruit. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 2, what Paul says. He says this, For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we could walk in them. Notice the progression. That we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus. You cannot earn any of God's approval or forgiveness. But when Jesus comes into your life, 
there's evidence of it immediately. There, there's, there's, there's fruitfulness in our life. So there's an evidence of it. And then this is confusing to us because we don't always understand grace. I know grace can be confusing to me because everything in your life you earn. You earned your grades in school. You earned your job. You earned that bonus. You worked really hard. You got it. But grace, you, you don't earn any of it. You know, you don't, you don't earn God's favor and forgiveness. It's freely given. And all we have to do is receive. But the problem for us as Americans is anything that's free is cheap. We think, oh, it's free. It must be cheap. And so we have this weird relationship with grace and we begin to think that grace must be participatory grace. It's a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of me. A little bit of Jesus, a little bit of what I do. I don't know what, what extent that is. God will make it all work out in the end, we might think. Is that what James is saying? It's participatory grace? A little bit of God, a little bit of me? No. The grace that James is pointing to and the rest of the Bible teaches is transformational grace. It says Diedrich Bonhoeffer said, it's costly grace, not cheap at all. And it's costly because it cost Jesus his life. And as that grace begins to work its way into our daily life and our hearts, it just changes you and how you live and how we live our very lives. You see, you are saved by grace through faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. You're saved by grace through faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. Now, my favorite coffee shop in Orange is called True Brew, and it's in OPA. I love that coffee shop, and my wife and I go there for a little date. I get a vanilla latte, and I'll start sipping it, and you can feel the caffeine going through your veins. I love that feeling, and I think to myself, I could probably read a book on my couch and not fall asleep or stay up past 8 p.m., and if you're over 40, you know what I'm talking about because I'm 43, and I'm starting to experience that now. You know, when you get Jesus in your life, it's like that. The, the grace of Jesus awakens you. And you can't do anything about it. It changes your life. So you can't, you can talk the talk all you want, but the real evidence of faith is by what you see. Sadly, many Americans who profess to be Christians don't realize that you can believe in God, but not have saving faith. I mean, let me say that again. You can believe in God, but not have saving faith. Remember the question at the start? Did you have something but really don't? not? And that's what James says in verse 18, or uh, 18, look down there with me. Now, if you're sarcastic, this is gonna be a great verse for you because James is sarcastic. You can put on the sarcasm hat for a moment. You believe that there's one God, good. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. Now you believe God, there's a, there's a God, no, it's fine. Even the demons believe. And James is quoting what's called the great Shema in, in Judaism. It was the most important creed in all of Judaism. And it was quoted in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. It says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Jews were commanded in the Bible to say this and pray this two times a day. And they were also commanded to pray it on the Sabbath and on their most important holidays. And James, who realizes many of his church were once Jews and they believed in Jesus, what he's saying to them is, you pray the great Shema, but you don't know the God of the Shema. You don't know this God that you're praying to. It is very easy for us to believe in God but not have saving faith. It's very possible. You can say, I've been to church my whole life. You can be in church and in a ministry at a church and miss out on saving faith. But pastor, I was, I was born in the nursery, man. You know, my grandmother had a great faith and she passed it on to me and I can feel it. 
hey, I love the fact that you were born in a church or you know, around church. I love that your grandma had great faith, but your grandma's faith can't save you. Only Jesus Christ can save you. I walked down an aisle at a crusade. Oh, that's awesome. Did it change you? The aisle can't change you. Only Jesus Christ can change you. See, it's very possible to believe in God and still not have saving faith. And that's what he says in that the demons can believe. In Mark chapter 1, verse 24, Jesus is doing ministry and he casts out a demon, which might be so foreign to some of us and that, that, that is a different world. Um, and, uh, and the demon comes out and speaks audibly and it says this, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. The demon had a knowledge of God, but we wouldn't call that saving faith. I grew up in a Christian home. I went to a Christian high school, Valley Christian Academy in Santa Maria, California, not the one out in Cerritos. My grandmother and my mom were the two best Bible teachers in all of Santa Barbara County. They taught every week at Bible Study Fellowship. Hundreds of women would come hear them teach. I heard my mom prepare her sermons in her study every single week when I was eight and eight and nine years old. I believed that, that the Bible was important. I knew right from wrong. If you'd asked me if I was a Christian, I would have said yes, but there was no evidence of faith in my life whatsoever. In fact, when I got saved at 19, you could have plotted a little course on an Excel spreadsheet and morally my life was getting worse as time was going on. Did I have saving faith? No. You see, saving faith has real evidence of it. It's entirely possible to have a belief in God but not have saving faith. How come? How is that possible? How can that even exist in a church like this, a great church, a great congregation? How could that exist maybe in your home? Well, it exists and it can exist because we've allowed faith to remain separate from a genuine life change in people's life. That's what James gets to in verse 18. He says this, but someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. You know, James is having a sort of imaginary conversation with somebody. It's like you got an imaginary friend. And that imaginary friend is saying to James, you have faith, I have deeds. You got faith, I got deeds. And now, everyone do me a favor, just kind of just shrug for a moment. It feels good anyway, right? That's kind of what I pictured this conversation happening between James and his friend. His imaginary friend is like, maybe with an Italian accent or something like, hey, you got faith, I got, you know, that was bad, but you know, you got faith, I got deeds. Like, yeah, uh, well, you know, he's, he's making a nonchalant point and he's trying to separate faith from deeds. Oh, you got faith, I got deeds. He's trying to separate, but you can never separate faith and deeds, James is trying to say. They always go hand in hand. They're always linked together, which is why he says the next verse, show me your faith without deeds. I'll show you my faith by my deeds. He, they're linked together. You cannot have one without the other. In 1859, a guy named Charles Bloden walked from one side of the Niagara to the other. You've probably heard this story before. He did it without a rope or a safety harness. If he fell, he would have fallen to his death. 160 feet across, 270 feet down. He did it 17 times without a rope. One time, he did it on stilts. Can you imagine that? It'd be pretty cool to see. I wish we had a TikTok video of that. One time, he, he did it blindfolded trying to walk it. Man, I fall over just standing on the platform right here. Another time he sat down and he cooked an omelet on the middle of the typewriter. That's incredible. 
One of the times he walked over to the audience, he said, do you think I can push a man in a wheelbarrow over the rope? No harnesses. And some guy raised his hand and said, yes, I do. I believe you can. And Charles Bowden, you know what he probably said. He said, will you get into the wheelbarrow? And the man said, no. <laughs> As I would have said too. You see, that illustration, that story illustrates the separation between belief and saving faith. Saving faith always has action to it. Saving faith always has evidence. Saving faith always has life change. You cannot have one without the other. And the early church knew this. 100 years after Jesus was resurrected from the dead, the early church would not allow people to be publicly baptized who professed to be Christians. They did this for a number of reasons. One of them was because they wanted to protect the name of Jesus. They didn't want a bunch of people walking around Thessaloniki and, and Rome and Ephesus saying, I'm a follower of Jesus, but having no evidence to their faith. And so when someone said, I'm a Christian, because there was persecution in that time, they surrounded them for three years, discipled them, made sure that they knew what they were getting into and made sure that they were actually real, genuine followers of Jesus. And that's a pretty good thing, but that day is upon us as well. Where we just can't have people saying, I'm a follower of Jesus and, and not showing it. You see, the most important question that people in the 20th century were asking is, is it true? Is the Bible true? Did Jesus really resurrect from the dead? People were asking that question a lot in the 20th century. It's an important question. Is it true? And Christian education was formed around training people like me to answer the question that it's true. But the current generation... Generation Y and Generation Z, they're not asking that if it's true. They're asking, does it work? Show me. Show me that your faith works. I want to see it. I want to see how your faith in Jesus actually impacts people with anxiety and depression and dysfunctional families. I want to see for real, show me that, that your faith in Jesus can actually change the world and care for people. I really want to see it. That's what the world is asking. We can learn something from the next generation and from other generations, which is why James brings up people from the Old Testament, Abraham and Rahab in verse 20. Abraham was a, a patriarch of the faith. Rahab was a prostitute. He says this in verse 20 about their faith and what we can learn about them. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. The scriptures were fulfilled. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not just by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. Abraham and Rahab, two very flawed people. If you go back to the Old Testament and read their stories, which I encourage you to do, two very flawed people. Abraham was a deceiver and a liar. But Rahab and Abraham both believed in their core something about God. They both believed that nothing was too difficult for God. They came to believe that about their God. It says in, in Hebrews that Abraham actually believed that God could raise people from the dead. Rahab believed that there's nothing too difficult for God. It says in, 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 in Joshua to the spies, we've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea when you came out of Egypt. 
Both Rahab and, and Abraham believed in their core that nothing was too hard for their God. And that's what saving faith looks like. People who have saving faith believe God can do anything. And so in response, they honor him with everything. They honor him with their life. Have you forgotten or maybe just kind of misplaced that nothing is too difficult for our God? Has, how's your faith doing? You know, there was a solar eclipse uh, a few weeks ago and my family and I went to the library to get some glasses to look at it. Maybe you went there too. My son's nine years old. So I looked at him before he looked at the, the, the sun. I said, now son, I never want you to look at the sun without these glasses. You know what I mean? And my son's like, okay. And I said, if, it, if you do, it will burn your eyeballs and they will come out of your head and they will look like liquid, okay? And they're never going to be able to fix your, your, your eyesight. He's like, thanks, dad. Appreciate the advice. You know, if you look at the sun without those glasses, it'll change you. If you get a glimpse of Jesus Christ, you can never be the same. Abraham and Rahab, they both got a glimpse of God and they believed that there's nothing too hard and their lives were different and they lived differently. There's a guy named Louis Giglio. He's a uh, pastor in Atlanta and he's been a voice to my generation for 20 years and I appreciate his ministry. And just a few weeks ago, he gave a message about a similar topic that if we see Jesus correctly, God correctly, it'll change our life. And I watched it and I thought about this message and with you all and I thought this is really edifying for people to watch. So I want to ask the team to play it on the screen and take what Louis says. Understand and remember, I want to be moved constantly by the fact that God is mighty, but that he's also merciful, that he's high above, but that he was willing to step down, that he's glorious, but he's also gracious. I want to be moved constantly by the fact that he is perfect. But praise God, he's also patient. That he's to be feared. But he also forgives sin. That he is exclusive. But he's also inviting. He's enthroned. But he's also incarnate. He's Yahweh. But he's also Abba my perfect father he's mysterious but he's also my god he is the name above all names but he also knows my name he's grandeur but he's also granular he's king of kings but he's also my friend he's judge but he's also savior. He's the champion, but he also champions the weak. He's sovereign over all, but he's attentive to me. He's all powerful, but he's tender. He's rock solid, but he's gentle. He's unchanging, but he's relevant. He's truth, but he's welcoming. He's self-sufficient but he's seeking worshipers. He's the best, but he's willing to hang out with the worst. He knows the worst of me, but he gave his best for me. He's God and good all by himself, but he generously shares himself with you and me. He's steadfast in holiness, 
but he's slow to anger. He's justified to dispense wrath, but he's eager to save. He's holding the whole cosmos, but he's also holding my hand. He's the centerpiece of heaven, but he's in the midst of my circumstance on earth. He's the owner of all, but he's not stingy. He's God, but he became a man. He's other, but he understands. He's the living God, but he died my death. He's Lord of all, yet a friend of sinners. He's in need of nothing, yet he desires a relationship with me. He sends lightning and thunder from his throne, yet he covers me in his grace. He's most worthy to be praised, but he was willing to be mocked. He deserves all honor, yet he humbled himself. He's seated on a throne, but he made a place for me to sit there with him. He's gone ahead, but he hasn't left me behind. He's uncontainable, but he lives in me. He called the universe into existence, yet he calls me his own. People who have saving faith believe God can do anything, so they will honor him with everything. Remember that old song from church, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. If you're happy and you know it, then your life will surely show it. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. That was so much better than my church. Man, that was great. What God is saying to us tonight is if you're saved and you know it, then your life will surely show it. So does it? Does it show it? You'll see it with people who serve at Family Fun Fest. 500 of them will have smiles all night. Thank you, by the way, for serving. You'll see and hear stories of moms and dads praying the Lord's Prayer at their kids at the bedside. You'll see it with people who are younger in their 20s who are rejecting a culture of individualism and choosing to be committed to community in a different way. You'll see it with people with anxiety and depression and cancer. And if you ask them, what they're thankful for, they'll tell you all the things that God's doing in their life. Your life will surely show it. Now, I don't mean to cause any anxiety for, about if you're saved or not, because I know people might have like a little bit of a perfectionistic conscience and you're, you're going, okay, I gotta check out the scale here. First John 5, 12, it says, if you have the son, you have life. If you don't have the son, you don't have life. You know, if you believe in Jesus, you have life. I don't mean to cause any insecurity in people's salvation, but maybe James chapter two, this passage, will get into your heart a little bit more and the life of the son will be seen a little bit more in how you live. Or maybe tonight you don't have the son. 
Can I introduce him to you? Maybe you've been a Christian in name only. Tonight, there's no band up here. I told the band, just stay back until we're done. No moment. Just you and God. I want to introduce the son to you. It's as easy as ABC. It's as easy as a child. A, we have to acknowledge that we're sinners. And that is not a popular word in our world today, but I'm a sinner. It just means I'm human. That I do not live the way that God designed us to live. All of us, attitude and thought. I have a need. A B means to believe in Jesus. Believe that he's the son of God, that he died for you. That he loves you unconditionally. He gave his life for you. He resurrected from the dead. He's fully man and fully God. That's the incarnation which we get to enjoy over Christmas in the next few weeks. Believing that his death on the cross was sufficient for your forgiveness. That he lived the perfect life that you cannot. He died the death that we deserved. And then it's commitment. See, it's a simple act of faith, but not just mental, a life change. A stepping out and saying, come into my life, animate my life, change me, make me like you. A, B, C. And if you don't know the son, or maybe it's just been Christian in look only, but not really having it, this is important. And I just want to invite us to pray and ask the Lord to do something in your life and, to, and for you to say, Lord, I need you, genuinely need you. And for any Christians in the room, you know how important this really is. And so would you pray for anybody in this room with me? For those who are on the, on the fence to say yes to Jesus this evening. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? Father God, thank you. Thank you for moments like these where we just come to the altar and we realize that, you know what, we can talk the talk. But really what we do, we just need Jesus. We need you, Jesus. And if anyone out here tonight, you just recognize I've been a Christian by name only uh, and I really do need the son. I just want to invite you to pray with me. You can just echo these words in your heart. The prayer doesn't save you, Jesus saves you. You can pray with me right now. Lord Jesus, I acknowledge that I've sinned against you. And maybe right now, as you even say those words in your heart, there's a sin that comes up in your mind. Take a moment, just even confess that. Like, I'm struggling with drinking. My attitude is awful. I'm angry. I've been a, a, a mean father or mother to my children. Maybe there's a sin that you just need to say, God, forgive me right now for. And then, Jesus, I, I, I've sinned, but I believe in you. I'm placing my trust and my faith in you and you alone. Come into my life. I receive grace and love that I did not earn. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for seeing me. And thank you for welcoming me into your family. I now commit my life to you. And may my life give you honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.